0: Create an Unstoppable Life, episode 148. Create an Unstoppable Life is all about mindset for the high achiever to help you build a life of fulfillment and freedom. I'm your host, Dina George, MD, a mindset and marketing coach and a family medicine physician. It's an honor to spend time with you today. Welcome back. I'm so glad to share this episode of the podcast with you. It's with Dr. Amy Vertries. She is an amazing soul for many reasons. She's a general surgeon in private practice. We were med students together at Uniformed Services University. We've known each other for a long time, and I have a deep respect for her and her family. She continually challenges the question of why not and why not me? And she has created an amazing life, and she helps others to do the same, and you'll hear more about it. She is also one of the co-founders of Women Warrior Healers. So you met Dr. Lori Boj a couple of weeks ago. Dr. Amy Vertrees is the other member, and it's an amazing journey that we are on. Enjoy the episode. I am sending you all so much love, and I'll see you next time. Ciao. Today is a great day <laughs> because we are here with Dr. Amy Vertrees, truly an amazing soul we have known each other for a long time. And, the, and so I can tell you with certainty that she is an amazing soul. She's an army veteran. She's a general surgeon. She's a private practice owner. She's a coach. She leads the boss series to help other surgeons with all the things that she wished she would have known. She's a mom. She's a wife. She's an incredible human. So that's how I'd introduce you. How do you want to introduce her? <laughs> well, I kind of like that. I think I'll just leave it right there.
1: I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon and Dean and I have known each other for a long time. So before entering into medical school, we both went to the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. And if you've never heard of it, don't worry. You're not the, alone. It's the only military medical school that we have, but Kaplan called it the best kept secret. And I completely agree. For those of you that, that, maybe other medical schools are like this as well, but we are paired with someone in the year group ahead of us to be our sponsor. And Dina was paired as my sponsor. And it's interesting because you wouldn't think like on the surface, Dina is put together. She is, everything is wonderful and amazing and quite unassuming. So you would not know that she is like the duck with cool and calm, and there's like tons going on under the water. She's highly motivated and skilled and fiercely competitive, like the humongous. I remember as a medical student that you were always like the top in the academics. I remember sitting there watching you get all the awards, all the things. (laughs) So, I mean, having you as my sponsor, and then we seem a lot different. You know, you're quiet, and I'm assuming, and I'm not. (laughs) We are so remarkably similar. And I've just learned so much from you as well. So now I know that we were paralleled together in medical school, but then went our different ways, but came back together through this conference that you created this really magical conference of the ACE, where you and Don and Nora created this group of women physicians coming together. From that, you and Lori and I just kind of decided that we really need to do this for the active duty and veterans because. As women in the military and women physicians in the military, there's so much isolation and so much that we can, unnecessary suffering. Because if you're by yourself, we don't recognize some of the things that we're feeling are not unique and there's actually a lot of help out there. And I was very fortunate to spend most of my time up at Walter Reed. I was there for the heights of the war. I was there with a lot of support. And there was a lot of people that I could go to. I ended up deploying three times, twice to Afghanistan and once to Iraq, to where there were smaller groups of people. And I think that's really the norm for a lot of the women veterans. When you're active duty, you go to these smaller stations. You may be the only female physician there. You may be the only female at all there. And you don't really realize some of the struggles that you have until you start voicing them and recognizing that, you know, all the things insecurities and the unconscious bias, all these things are things that everyone is feeling. And it's very easy to feel alone. I was fortunate that I didn't feel as alone as some, but until I I went on deployments and recognizing, yeah, I mean, there's certainly an epidemic of isolation and fear and loneliness. And so I think the three of us coming together and recognizing that need and trying to prevent some of that isolation is a really important part of
0: overcoming
1: you know my own feelings about being in the military.
0: I love women warrior healers. I love what it stands for. I love who's joining the group. I love what's being formed in the group. I love who our mentors are that we're receiving this vibrant mentorship or simply just support to say we're not crazy and keep going and this is what healing looks like. And I really feel like this strong urge, desire, want to be part of this community and to open up the doors to my military service and experience and share what I think will be helpful and show others exactly as you said, that we aren't alone. Maybe we aren't crazy Because these are not conversations that happen when I'm around civilian physicians. I love being around women physicians. It's very special. It's just it doesn't feel like all of me can be there because there isn't that shared experience, especially around deployment. Absolutely. I mean, no one really can understand
1: what we went through, either. You know, just run of the mill active duty stations, or you know, especially deployments. Both of those are just really different animals. And I think it's a little bit like. Some comparison to civilian medicine, I think really makes sense where in the hospital, the administration, we don't feel like they always understand the physicians and where we feel like we are on the different mission. And the army was that and exaggerated because you not only have the hospital administration, but you have the army mission at large. And oftentimes we know that we are not isolated physicians. There, We're not the... the, separate. We are part of the mission. And in some ways it was a little bit challenging when we felt like as a surgeon, especially, I felt like my job was to be in the OR, become a better surgeon, where especially as we were spread thin around with the multiple deployments, it was very difficult to try to maintain your surgical skills and your operative volume because to su- support the mission, we needed to be everywhere, but everywhere did not mean operating all the time. And so it was always an interesting aspect to kind of butt heads with the army mission and you know what I felt I needed to be as a surgeon. And that can be really conflicting because you it's a setup for failure. I'm either going to fail as an army officer, I'm going to fail as a surgeon. And I think if you're in that situation by yourself, you're faced with a no one situation. And I think having someone that you can reach out to and say, I see you, I get it. And this is how I overcame it, or this is how I strategized that as something that's really necessary. Because if you're alone, if you're isolated in a no one position,
0: it's a real difficult place to be in. So I remember you talking about creative solutions that you figured out in the DC area to have more operative time, have more case variety. It was an
1: interesting time. So we had just merged the Walter Reed Army Medical Center had just merged with Walter Reed or the Naval Hospitals and became Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. And people were coming back from deployments, and we still had a lot of war injured coming in. So to do the a lot of the elective things, they were rightly so bumped. And I remember doing a hernia at midnight once, <laughs> and I told him I was like, "I tomorrow doesn't look any better for you. Might as well just do it." <laughs> and so I started finding some solutions. And this was one of those things of like, if you are committed to doing something, I was committed to maintaining my surgical skills and volume. And so I just looked around and I was fortunate to be in the DC area and said, there's Andrews Air Force Base and there's Kimbrough up at Fort Meade. And they both had ambulatory centers, which ironically were kind of suffering for lack of volume, and so they're both around like forty minutes away. So eventually, I took my same day elective cases there, one at one place and one another. I basically hustled to wherever I could get some operative time, and then I realized, well, I can just have clinic out here too. And then it, it was actually a win-win for an, a number of ways. Our patients were served; these ambulatory centers got volume, and. I was able to take clinics and operative cases closer to on these bases where a lot of places or a lot of our population was populated. So that was a way of not taking no for an answer because it wasn't that easy. I had to convince people that it was worthwhile and it was nice. And I think early on starting to recognize that not just thinking about myself, but how could I serve other people? How could I effectively negotiate to where it would be Like, it'd be foolish for them to say no. And so really recognizing how I could serve my own interest and serve interest of the mission was really helpful. And I think that's why I was able to be pretty effective in that area.
0: It's amazing what we can do when we're we're in the position of advocating for our patients, when we see needs that are being unmet and things that are important, maybe not urgent, but are important, they're unmet and advocating for that. And so a lot of what we do, even as physicians is selling, we don't realize we're selling, but we are, we're selling ideas, we're selling solutions, we're offering to help. We're not selling it in a way that we earn money. At least I don't. In my job as a hospitalist, I don't earn money based on what the patient consents to or wants to do. (laughs) I earn a flat fee. We're always selling and having that why behind what we're doing, why we're doing it is so important.
1: Well, you are still selling even with a flat fee because I know that in my hospital there was a talk that the their hospital is having to subsidize the hospitalist group because they're not making as much money. And I think that's the problem: is that as we lose control over understanding the fees, how do you advocate for yourself for the hospital to keep you? As we see people losing their contracts and physicians losing their job, which is like mind boggling. We really do have to understand what how we're getting paid what the rules are, how we're going to navigate these spaces and how we really, not only we have to know our value first, but we have to make sure they see our value as well, because we bring more than just seeing patients. We bring revenue to the system. We bring a, the faith that we have in the system. We contribute to the reputation of the hospital, the great care. There's so much that we really bring to the table. And I think that we have to remind each other of that too. And This kind of gets back to the importance of the mission, too, because if you become more and more withdrawn within yourself, then you don't recognize your value. So therefore, you can't advocate for your value and then you won't be valued.
0: Yeah. And the other thing that comes up when just in hearing you say that is the trusted relationships we develop with other physicians in the community Both the receiving from them, like from our primary care physicians, having that trusted relationship that in the hospital, their patients are going to be taken care of, and then who we're handing off to and the physicians that are receiving. So in our skilled facilities or rehab facilities or home health agencies, having those trusted relationships really is a value to the hospital or the systems that we work with.
1: Absolutely. And it just makes life better. <laughs> Isn't that much more fun to like collaborate with people. And I also don't mean to make anything like the ad- admin, the enemy because they're not in the military. They weren't the enemy either. It's just understanding what people's interests are. And when you realize you're just dealing with people, then it makes sense that you can just, well, of course, I'm going to like want to make sure that the primary care knows that their patient is going to be taken care of. And of course, I want to know that when they leave the hospital, that they're going to be taken care of all those things is when we kind of think of these systems, we also depersonalize it. But I think the more that we're able to spread these networks out and get people to remember that it really is all about just people understanding other people. And that's how we, for one thing, get the system to work, but it's just so much more fun to do that. What do you see as the mission of Women Warrior Healers? I think really providing a framework that people can, a network that people can come to And feel appreciated because they don't have to, like, we know who they are. We know, like, what they're up against. We know how far they've come. We're there to remind them of their achievements when it's really easy to forget. And we're there to provide opportunities they may not have known about. We're there to offer them solutions they didn't even know that they were finding or looking for, I should say. And it's going to affect at every level of the career. Someone who's first joining in and has no clue will come join us. We've got this. Let's show you around. Then you have the people that have been there for a while. And quite honestly, when you get a little bored with everything going around, it's kind of exciting to see like, oh, look, someone here is something new. And I remember being that way and a little bit of reminiscent, but also working on that mentorship aspect. And I can see people who are towards the end of their career and As a way to honor them with them also providing mentorship, it really honors the length of their career and all that they've been through to share their struggles and what they've done. And I can, I see this as just something that's meant for everyone. Like when you create a group where everyone's interests are similar and we have the same problems, then you see all of your problems in your career in all one group to where there's something for everyone. And I think that's where a well-placed group can help.
0: It's easy in my experience to get so tunneled vision on today or this month or the next few months, rather than to have a big perspective of what's available. And I think that the combination of active duty and veterans in a space together, there's lots of people to help shine lights on what I am not seeing as far as opportunity goes or ways of thinking about something, overcoming obstacles.
1: I completely agree. Cause I think in the military, it's a little bit easier because the network is a little bit more intact and I think that as veterans, though, it fragments a little bit. Everyone goes into their own places. And so I think that we're used to having people to go to. But as we leave, for one thing, I think the biggest angst that people have is the transition of going from active duty to becoming a veteran is what's out there and who do I go to and how is this going to work? So a lot of people have reached out to me in their transition where I can say like, Here's some of the things I'd look out for. And you're going to be fine. That Those are the main things that people are looking for is like, I just want to know that I'm fine and that I'm on the right track. I'm going to try to prevent and make as little mistakes as possible. Yeah.
0: I went to fellowship after, because it seemed like such a foreign land, like civilian healthcare and the systems and navigating that. So that's one of the reasons it made a softer landing from leaving the military to have this transition time, but also the focus on what I wanted to do, which is taking care of the acute medical patient.
1: I think it's also really helpful to get an appreciation for some of the things that just irritate the fire out of you right now. <laughs> because like there's certain things in the military where they're very strict on protocols. And I remember just like the rigidity of that sometimes would drive me a little crazy. But then I go out into like the hospital, like I'll give you a very simple example. Like they were very particular about marking. You had to mark, it had to be a form, it had to be this form and it had to be at this time. And, and I was like, why are we doing all of this? <laughs> I remember going to my hospital and I was like, okay, where's the marker to mark? Cause you we have all this little, it's almost like seared into your mind as a traumatic event. I was like, okay, where's the marker? I will mark it. Who do I need to show that I'm marking it? I'm marking before we go back. And then they're like markers we don't have any markers. <laughs> <laughs> like no one ever asked for any markers and but I appreciate the the structure and I think that we effortlessly get a lot of leadership lessons that are lost in the civilian side. And I think that we just don't recognize how this systematic approach and the checklist approach, how advantageous that really is. At Walter Reed, there was a huge focus on quality. The peer review process was meant to improve the system. There's a really good way to do things. And I learned a lot of good ways to do things. And when I came out to a place, I think a lot of people just don't get that piece of training and education. And so it's kind of nice to be able to, on the other side, say, yes, there's many things that are better. I actually did like all those things that are knowing you right now are really, really useful. And then you look at these tasks in a different way of saying, ah, this really annoying task is actually working for me. And now I can see the value rather than it just being an irritation.
0: <laughs> like the army physical fitness test.
1: <laughs> that no, that can be gone forever. This is working for
0: me. This is helping <laughs> me stay in shape and be more consistent. <laughs>
1: Well, I did actually talk to someone about that, about like, you're keeping up with the dental and the eye, like when they hold leave over your head, which is of course, insensing, you know, like, why can't I go on vacation? Why do I have to do all this? And I'm like, thank goodness I had that. Cause that's the only way I ever stayed on track with some of these things is <laughs> <laughs> like, where, where's my punishment now? <laughs> what are you proud of? I'm proud of a lot of things. And I really think that there's a part of me that accepts being a little bit uncomfortable and with the interest of getting better. And a friend of mine was joking. She says, you never know exactly how you look to someone else until they tell you. And she said, like, if I were to get you a t-shirt, I saw this t-shirt the other day and it said, that sounds like a terrible idea. Let's do it. It was interesting that she reflected that back to me because I think the one thing that I'm proud of is the ability to try different things, to do things that are a little bit outside the box, but, and that's how I was able to maintain my operative volume in a time where it was difficult. And that's how I was able to, and I didn't really mention this, but I was able to open up a private practice two years ago and going almost like against traffic, against the grain. But looking back now, I mean, I see why I did it and it was absolutely the right thing for me to do and just. Not just doing things my own way and being okay with it. I'm okay with failure, which has allowed me to try things. And so I'm in a much different than I was even last year. And I'm in like a completely different person than years ago, just because I've allowed myself to try and potentially fail. Even transitioning from the employed to private practice, there are certain thoughts that stick out in your mind is that's what made me successful. And that thought was, I'm going to make as few mistakes as possible. (laughs) and so that let me do things because I let myself potentially fail. It's not something that we're taught in medical school because failure is usually not a great option, but as we kind of transition to the entrepreneur stuff spirit, that is what I'm most proud of is allowing myself to fail, which is ironic.
0: What does the internal narrative sound like? Um, It's interesting because the more I've tuned
1: into my internal narrative, I've really gotten an appreciation for some of those really negative and scary things that we tell ourselves. And once I started realizing that the internal narrative that I have is really like this part of us that's just trying to keep us safe. They just do things in very strange ways. Then my internal narrative, I feel like everything is said for me. Everything is said to keep me safe. And so the person, the things that come up that sound terrible, like when you listen to a sentence in your head, that sounds terrible. And you realize, "Oh I mean, I hear what you're saying and you're just trying to keep me safe and that's okay. And I wrote an article about it called stop resisting the imposter where kind of e- treating that imposter part of our brain as a completely separate person who is, has the best intentions at heart. It feels like a little smaller, more vulnerable part of us. And when you feel that that smaller, more vulnerable part of us just saying, hey, this we shouldn't do this, then you say, well, come over here. I'm actually, I feel like I could probably learn something from this. And so you stop judging it and you stop pushing it away and you start
0: using it to leverage and improving your life rather than worrying all the time. Yeah. So good. Our mentor for women warrior healers, I was talking with my son about this and said, anytime she makes a suggestion, I'm just going to say yes. If she says, hey, why don't you think about this? Or why don't you do this? I'm be like, yes, I will. Yes, I am. I'm not going to let that reflexive no come up and say, oh no, and find all the reasons I can't. The answer is no. yes.
1: I love it. Isn't, yes, we have such great mentors. And I know that Dr. Mariano, we've talked to at length and just hearing her, like all the amazing things she's done, and how she like effortlessly says, Sure, yeah, I did this great. Why don't you come with me and let's do it too? Yes. <laughs> That's so great. Exactly. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> Whatever you say, yes.
0: <laughs> what do you think the components of an unstoppable life are? I mean, exactly the definition of it don't let anything stop you. Like the, and it's
1: interesting the things that we let stop us that we don't even realize it. I think that the key to an unstoppable life is to be conscious of what's trying to stop us. And just like that internal voice, rather than trying to let it stop you, because even then it sounds negative, like when something comes up that's keeping you from doing exactly what you want is to see every obstacle as an opportunity or a learning experience. And then you don't have to slow down. It doesn't turn turn us into these overwhelming emotions of, worry and concern and things like that. You can see everything as a, oh, I see, I see how that was supposed to help me out. And so nothing actually stops you. I think we stop ourselves. So I think a key to an unstoppable life is just being conscious of your life. And I've had this phrase before too, of becoming a creator rather than a reactor. I already have, I may not exactly sure where I'm going, but I definitely have a direction and that helps. I'm, there's always forward motion even if it slows down, I always know I'm going somewhere. It was ironic because that someone asked me a couple weeks ago after a talk and they says, what are you going to do in five years? And I'm like, I'm like completely stumped. I have no idea, but I know what direction I'm going
0: in. (laughs) Is that crazy? No, it's not crazy (laughs) at all. And Aaron Wiseman says forward is the pace. Yeah. Forward is the pace. For me, the destination is more freedom and fulfillment. Yeah, What does that look like in five years? I have no idea, but I- what I know, it's going to be a higher level of both of those things than it is today.
1: Agreed. And I think that when you're on this self-discovery path, it's almost like an exponential growth. And when you're in exponential growth, and I don't even recognize who I was two years ago who who made the decision to do this private practice. I look around and I think, how did we do this? And I don't even want to box myself into what the next five years might look like. Because I mean, I couldn't even, I'm blowing my own mind for
0: just the last year or two. I can't imagine what five years would be. (laughs) Truly amazing. What other words of wisdom do you want to share?
1: I think the biggest thing that people don't realize is our internal narrative is happening regardless, whether we pay attention to it or not. For those that are new to the idea of mindset and coaching and all, you know, get a friend, or get an actual coach in training, or just something to recognize that there's always an internal dialogue and tune into that and start living your life on purpose rather than what's happening next. Just really start to listen to yourself because you are the wisest counsel that you have. And once you start listening to that, that's when your life's going to change.
0: Yeah. That's the whole reason this podcast exists is the recognition that the self-talk is so critical. And it wasn't just me. It's for many high achievers, so critical and demanding, and that it turns out it's optional. Exactly. Or it's actually supposed to help you. It can help you. Yeah. Crazy. So you are the best general surgeon in Tennessee. Where pe- where can people find you?
1: <laughs> My office is in Columbia, Tennessee. It's the Columbia Surgical Partners. You can find information on the practice at ColumbiaSurgicalPartners.com. Or you can find me at bosssurgery.com if you're a surgeon and you want to learn more. Anything else? No, I think you're doing wonderful things. I think helping people create unstoppable lives, what an amazing life mission. And you, of course, are excelling as I would imagine that you would.
0: Well, it's been an honor. We've known each other for 22 years. 22 years. It's been an honor to walk with this journey with you and with Liam and uh, and to see all that you've created, into, including your two beautiful daughters.
1: Yes, I feel the exact same way. I mean, we're essentially family by choice. <laughs>
0: Thanks so much. Create clarity and simplicity with all of your marketing so that the people you serve know how you can help them. As a Story brand certified guide, I help physicians create this to launch or grow any type of business. Sign up for a consult call with me at georgemdcoaching.com.